Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, how will Dacre's departure affect the Daily Mail? What is the secret sauce in Love Island's success? And the local TV provider making untransmitted stories with BBC Money. Plus, our panel discuss Jeremy Vine at the helm of The Right Stuff. Ruth Fitzsimons from Audio Boom answers your questions about funding and the company's future. And in the media quiz, our guests match the pundit to the network in the battle of World Cup broadcasters. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And with me today is Leon Wilson, Managing Director of Talkback Thames, and Liz Howell, former Head of Broadcast at City University. And uh, Leon, what's been big in Talkback World this week? Uh, well, we recently launched a new series called John Richardson, Ultimate Warrior on Dave, which oh, yeah. went down very well. Very heavily promoted. Very heavily. Yeah, it was on buses. It was, like, it was actually a running, there's a WhatsApp group going in the company of just people sending pictures of the, the adverts in places around the country, which became really sort of intimidating after a while because you start thinking, oh, if this doesn't do very well, we're going to look like right idiots. But it did, it did very well. And I think there's going to be a second series next year. I probably shouldn't say that, but hopefully there will be. Uh, and then we've got a new Definitely series. should be giving us... Yes, sorry, yeah. Uh, and then we've got a new series of Keith Lemon coming in America, starting on ITV2 in about two weeks' time after Love Island. It's a good title. It's a good title. I, I was pleased with I that know one. what that show is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't have to see it. Exactly. Although, of course, I will. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Liz Howe, when you were last on the show, you were just on the verge of retirement. I presume now it's just golf and afternoon tea for you? Yeah, it's like that every day. I wake up, I have a glass of Prosecco, I go back to sleep. No, <laughs> in fact, I've been working on a conference which is happening tomorrow at City University of London, which is about the figures that we regularly survey of the number of women on air. It's something I think where you still have to keep your foot on the accelerator. We've got a lot of big names coming along to speak and uh, hopefully they'll be trying to put forward some sort of plan for making sure that women are properly represented in the news. And is that still very much a live conversation in your world as well, uh, Leon, of sort of comedy entertainment TV? You still get the situation, don't you, where okay, there may be a female host of Have I Got News For You from time to time, but in those weeks you notice there's four male panellists. Uh, it's absolutely still a, a huge thing for diversity in every sense, but it's, uh, and specifically um, having more women on our shows. So the new series of QI, um, obviously Sandy Toxic's been host for the last three years, but it has the highest proportion ever of sort of women to men. And actually it's not far off 50%. I'd love to say that it is 50%, but it's not, but it's very close to being 50% across the series. Uh, and in general, of course, all the sort of panel shows, we, we, I mean, Celebrity Juice, weirdly, as a show that is kind of seen as... 
maybe a bit sexist, has always had the highest proportion of women, female guests on it, of any mainstream panel show, uh, television show, I should say. Yeah, we're always very keen on that, specifically because it helps counter some of the accusations you can make about that show. Yeah, 50% of the jokes are about tits. <laughs> it's <laughs> easier when there's women there, I imagine. <laughs> it's about everyone being part of the joke rather than being uh, the, the, the subject of the, of the joke. joke. Yeah, yes. absolutely, the, the butt of the joke, literally. I <laughs> and mean, the joke is always on Keith Lemon, to be clear. That's where my view on that show. Yes. Okay, let's start this week by talking about another live issue in TV and that is I guess the kind of exploitation particularly of young people working behind the scenes Um, and a story that's really making waves this week former employees of local broadcasters That's TV Uh, they're a network of local TV stations That's Leeds That's Oxford etc have told BuzzFeed that their stations run on BBC Money for stories that are never aired. Uh, Liz, what's the background to this? First of all, I've got to confess an interest here because I'm actually on the board of That's Carlisle, which is the local station for Carlisle. And frankly, without the input from That's TV, there wouldn't be a local station in Carlisle. I also know that That's TV are very concerned about these allegations and that lawyers' letters are already on the go. So I think we have to be terribly careful about what we say. Throughout the industry generally especially in radio, actually, there is a tendency for young people to come in as interns or be unpaid or work for a long time. I've had lots of examples of this amongst students. BuzzFeed claim that many of these stations are existing solely, according to previous staffers there, to take the £147.50 that comes per story from the BBC for stories that they report, stories that are then given to the BBC, which the BBC choose not to transmit, but the, there's a sort of unspoken rule that everyone knows they won't be, won't be transmitted. The stations are set up to generate these stories to get that money from the public purse. And essentially, it's being run to take that money and not give it to the people that are making well, the well, stories. That's think, the allegation. I think you have to be very careful about what you say in this instance, because presumably there will be all sorts of legal activity around it. But that is not why these stations were set up. They were not set up to provide material for the BBC. They were funded by the BBC and they were there to provide a service for the community. And as part of that, there was an agreement that stories, if appropriate, would be provided for the BBC. There was never any understanding that the BBC would have to take them or even would want to take them. But that was the deal that was done by Jeremy Hunt when he was the the minister and that was the understanding on which it was set up and there's nothing that I can see that in any way conflicts with the original understanding. And the original idea though was to have a subsidy from the BBC so that local businesses could thrive and local um, new news organisations could pop up providing opportunities for people to work there. So does the very idea of a network of stations all around the country actually contradict that? No, because that was one of the things that was suggested in the first place. There was something called the Shot Report, which said that there should be local television stations, but they should be in big cities. And I was actually part of a small group that campaigned for those television stations to be in smaller cities like Norwich and Carlisle and York, and Greg Dyke led that particular group. And that was the the sort of ethos that won the day under Jeremy Hunt, and so these small stations were set up. In fact, it's finished now. There won't be any more that they've run out of licences. In many Lofcom cases... Lofcom have basically said it's been a failure. Well, I don't think they've ever said it. They wouldn't say that it's been a failure. What they they've said that is word. that, you know, we've gone as far as we're going to go with this. And the fact is it's extremely difficult to set these things up. But it's a, it's a good idea, and if people want to lose their money that way or take part in that, then I think that they've got the right to do that. And in some instances, it has been extremely successful. What has happened, though, is because 
obviously there are economies of scale. Two big companies in the end dominated. One was made and one was that. But they did keep the thing going. And I have had students who've gone to work for both maids and that's and really enjoyed it, got a lot out of it. It's not a job for life, but it can be a really good launch pad. No, and to be fair, a lot of the former staffers of that's who were all piling in on Twitter to say, yes, I was exploited too nonetheless are people that now do have jobs in other media companies. They did use it as a stepping stone. It depends on your definition of exploitation. I mean, they are earning a minimum wage in, in many cases. It would be nice if they weren't. But if, if it was those stations didn't... like them having to pay their own travel expenses. And well, this that happens in an awful lot of local media, you know? What was your thought, Leon, on reading this story in BuzzFeed? My thought was, oh my God, Jeremy Hunt was responsible for this as well. I'd forgotten about that. Um, I've always questioned the need for local television in this way. I know, Liz, you've been a big champion of it, and I, I can see where the impetus Yeah, but you're from. metrocentric. I, I've never thought it's the right way to use to spend the public money, essentially. I've, I've always felt that it was it was doomed for failure. And I'm not saying it necessarily everything has been a failure, but I feel like largely this is a symptom of the fact that it is very, very hard for these companies to make a real success of it in, in the modern media landscape. I mean, so, I, so to me, I felt reading these stories, I was like, I felt weirdly reassured. I was like, oh good, I'm back in the planet of the world I understand. I always thought this was going to be impossible. Because you're, you're, Liz says you're metrocentric, but you're, you're from Cornwall, right? I'm from Cornwall, yes. So, I mean, in places like that, you can see why there might be a need for local yeah, TV. and there are local TV. There's two, four started down in Plymouth, and they did make. There's a lot of independent production companies. I think they're quite well served by Channel Four. But there is a limited amount of money. There's a limited amount of media that can be made with the, with the kind of the size of the British market. And I feel like a lot of work's been done already with the BBC and Channel Four to help sub, sort of pay for local um, television and local media. And I just felt this was a step too far. And I don't, I don't, I'm not knocking the impetus to do it. I just think it was. Probably it was doomed to have a limited amount of success given the dominance of the likes of Netflix and everything else. You look at the viewing figures for some of these channels, they're very low. But that's nothing against the people that tried to make it. It's just very, very hard. I mean, some of the, view- the listening figures for some of the local radio stations are very, very they low. Are, and yeah. if, if they're an independent. We're talking viewing figures of 30 Sorry. have been reported well, for yeah, the TV. Well, you know, viewing, viewing figures, are if they're not being monitored by Barb, how do you know anyway? But if people want to have a go at it, why not? And I was one of them. Let them have a go at it. OK, you could argue there shouldn't be a BBC subsidy, but it's very, very small in the terms of the huge amount of money that's poured into the BBC. And in fact, there was an argument for saying the BBC has to some extent strangled at birth a lot of local television ventures because of their, their huge monopoly and that they're paying back in this way. And, you know, the thing it may still succeed. The thing that isn't disputable, though, is what the stations actually look like to the general public. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as reported in, in BuzzFeed, a lot of the time you tune into those networks and it's one bulletin that's effectively repeated. They re-script it. So it's, it's one half-hour bulletin that they do twice to fulfil their obligations to do local news. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the schedule is copyright-free black-and-white films. How can that possibly be a good use of a local TV frequency? Surely they'd be better to show even really cheap stuff that they've filmed themselves on repeat that well, is about by the By definition, area. what you film yourself isn't necessarily cheap. And if they're filling the time and people are watching it, I mean, black and white films can be a really good... When I started channels in the 90s, like Living and so on, we had to do things on a shoestring. Obviously, nothing like on this sort of shoestring. But you do look for cheap materials sometimes because you've got to fill the time whilst you get your act together, whilst you build an audience. Just give it a bit more time. If it fails, it fails. But it might not. I mean, when it comes to the treatment of younger workers across any media industry, whether it's TV or print, we talk about this a lot. Yeah. As I say, this is a big issue, isn't it? And Leon, you must face this as well. You must have people who are desperate to work for you, writing for you for work experience. They would do it for free. They'd find a way of living in London for a year. Yeah. They're not going to concern you about it. 
but they're going to be in negative equity by doing so. Yeah, and it's up to the production companies to make sure they don't exploit people. I mean, obviously, there can be regulation put in place, but really, it's about production companies taking responsibility for that. And so the company I ultimately work for, uh, Fremantle, have put in place very clear guidelines in the last few years we've been working towards. So no one can do any more than two weeks' working experience unpaid. And even the people that do that, they have very limited working hours. They can't be there late. They can't be there early. Lots of things in place to try and make sure we're not exploiting those people. There are efforts being made, but I'm not in any doubt that there's still exploitation still going on in the media industry because that's kind of not inevitable but it's kind of part of the, the business to a certain extent but it's up to us to take responsibility to stop it. it it is such an attractive industry to young people that's the difficulty they really do want to do it and we have enough wealthy young people in this country for them to be able to say yeah I'll do anything to get in I'll work for free I'll do this that and the other and that's that's a very attractive proposition to a lot of companies and frankly not just small companies I have had evidence in the past with students being directly exploited by very large companies where they They've done weeks and weeks and weeks of very high-quality work experience as researchers and originators on shows and things and just not been paid at all. So it is a big problem. And the grey area often is that when someone is earning perhaps minimum wage as an intern, so they have a position, it's all legal and it's clear, but then they're given an opportunity. You know, that's the grey area, isn't it? So they're working as a runner and someone says, why don't you do this job and help the researcher... Then they're being paid as a runner to do a researcher's Mm -hmm. job, but the whole point is they can then say afterwards, I'm a researcher and get a job as a researcher. And that is endemic. It happens everywhere. It it happens in almost every walk of life because that's how people gain advancement. And as long as it doesn't go on too long, you can't say to them, we're not going to give you this opportunity. How do we define too long? That's the issue, isn't it? Three months is probably okay, a year probably Mm. isn't. I mean, how do you... Yeah, I think I'd say put it as a production. So I have we have runners that will do over the course of a production will clearly be doing work that amounts to being a researcher, and often at the end of that we will give them a researcher credit or junior researcher credit because so that'll we feel be like twelve weeks of the yeah, series of a competition. That kind of thing. and then that yeah. means it gives them the next. If we employ them again, they'll be as a researcher. If they work elsewhere, they'll be as a researcher. But if you do if you do that for any more than a production, one production, then I feel like. That, for me, in my experience, tips over into exploiting Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. That's a really good level at which to say enough's enough. Um, And I think just picking on one particular company or one particular area and saying that's exploitative is to ignore the endemic problem across the whole piece. Okay, let's talk about print now. And after 26 years at the helm, uh, we learned last week that the Daily Mail editor, Paul Dacre, will give way to Geordie Grieg in November. Uh, that is an exceptionally long run, uh, but Paul Dacre's not leaving the building, is he, Leon? No, congratulations to him on his promotion. I bet he's <laughs> delighted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's been appointed chairman of Associated Newspapers. Yes. Uh, no, he's not leaving the building. He's moving up, but essentially moving into a, an area where he's not got any editorial control over the paper, as far as I understand it. Um, I can't... I, my reading about this story, it's very complicated what's really gone on. My impression of it is that the mail need to cut some costs because profits are down and a bit like suddenly in the way that certain Hollywood dinosaurs become subject to kind of they're thrown on the on the, the scrap heap when they're suddenly the financials aren't so good I'm not suggesting Paul Dacre's anything wrong in that regard but it seems convenient that, and, and there's a question mark of whether he's the right person to cut costs in the mail going forward because he's obviously they're, they're the biggest newspaper they're the biggest budget and there's a sense that that might that some of those days might be over because of you know it's really beginning to bite the falling print uh, circulation so um, far as I can tell it's maybe as much about the fact that you know there's, there's cuts to be made at the mail and he's maybe not the person to do it 
And Liz, I mean, he's such a divisive figure. It's been an amazing career. I think there are two elements to this. One is the fact that I think Facebook has changed its procedures, so not so many people are going through to articles on Mail Online, and that's cut their circulation, for want of a better word. And the other thing I think is totally political, because there is this difference between the Mail on Sunday's stance on Brexit and the Mail's stance on Brexit. And Paul Dacre was the sort of Brexit superman, and, and Geordie Grieg was not on the Mail on Sunday. And it may be that because we, we suspect Rothermere is more in favour of Remain than Brexit, that Dacre's fallen out of favour. And, and politics do happen. He's been there a long time. It's a long time to be in charge, and sometimes attitudes change. I mean, he could, I mean, from a political point of view, it is interesting, isn't it, that all of the Brexiteers in public life, by the time Brexit happens, I mean, think of Nigel Farage as well, for example, David Cameron, who was Prime Minister at the time, not a Brexiteer, but responsible for the referendum, none of them are actually going to have the positions they had when they argued for it. And Paul Dacre's part of that, isn't he? He's, he's been strongly arguing for Brexit, even this week, with the vote in the House of Commons, but he won't be there when it happens if there's fallout. Well, it's going to take so long. Who, who knows who's going to be there when it happens? But yes, you're right, and there's a lot of change in that arena. But the point is that the paper, the mail, was absolutely the champion of Brexit. You could argue, a bit like the election, where the sun was supposed to have swung it, that the mail swung it for Brexit, and now it's like evidence that the mail's proprietor has changed his mind or has gone against the, the editor's views and eventually ditched the editor. So it, it is all very interesting. I think sometimes we have this slightly romantic view. You saw it in the film The Post. But looking back across Dacre's career, I mean, it's quite interesting. Polly Toynbee wrote this piece in The Guardian when he announced he was moving on, which essentially said, this is the man who's responsible for a cycle of hate against Muslims, immigrants, benefit claimants. And then Roger Alton, former editor of The mm-hmm. Observer, wrote in to The Guardian saying... No, he was, this sort of rather Trump-esque quote, a newspaper man of genius. I mean, the point is, of course, (laughs) that he can be both. And he obviously was a newspaper man of genius, you know, incredible circulation. He had his finger on the pulse of Middle Britain. He was also a bit of an arsehole. The fact is that nobody made people read the mail. They read it because it appealed to them. He managed to touch a nerve with a lot of... It appealed to their base instincts, which they managed to tap into, isn't it? I'm not suggesting it's not successful, but the reasons why it's successful you could say the same about some comedy shows couldn't you that they appeal to the base instead yeah it's people, true yeah, you know? yeah but we're not they're not designed to set out to change people's opinions about the world and, mm, and kind of like exclude I, I, foreigners and, I don't want to have that argument but I don't entertainment's I think entertainment can be extremely damaging and in the field of feminism entertainment really has so his legacy is really quite controversial obviously um, and over these years he he has done amazing things and also things which I personally probably would agree with Leon not great either but he's definitely been a force I think that's all I can say in a way it's not enough is it I feel like this when we discussed with Rupert Murdoch as well Mm. because they're such divisive figures that you 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 lose this sense that they are both things at once you know they have perpetuated hatred that seems beyond doubt they'd probably admit to it. At the same time, they've done great also, stories and also great Also responsible for, for more complaints to press regulatory bodies than any other newspaper by an absolute country mile under his editorship. You know, the amount of complaints that the, that the, the Mail have against him every year, year on year on year on year since it began, their disregard for the public and the public's interest in terms of pr- intruding on their lives is absolutely phenomenal. Mm. So that's, that, for me, is the biggest failure in the Mail because obviously, you know, they have a political agenda and that's part of the British, ecology of British public, but the way they have treated the public, the way they have demonised members of the public repeatedly and misrepresented them, 
in their in their thousands every year. But that's he a for me. And he is the head of that organisation. Is he a and that's newspaper why man I, of genius? Yeah, well, hang on, possibly, but, hang on. But it, it depends on disregard for the public. It depends on your your definition of, of newspaper man. You know what is what does that phrase really mean? If it means that we respect somebody because on occasion they can be brutal, they can touch a nerve, they can excite a, a sort of mob feeling. Well, then yes, he's a newspaper man of genius. But whether or not that's desirable is another question. Okay, and Geordie Grieg, briefly, do we think we're going to see a change? At the Daily Mail, because as Liz said, he, he, he wrote an editorial for Remain for the Mail on Sunday. Yes, yes, there is a more George Osborne-style liberal conservative feeling to the Mail on Sunday than to uh, the Mail under Dacre. So do you think we might see that come down to the Daily Mail now as well? I think the Mail will do whatever they think it, they need to do to keep their, their circulation up. And that's what Dacre's been... I don't really know exactly... I mean, we know he's, he's a pro-Brexit guy, but we don't really know really what he really thinks about a lot of things. What he's been very good at is tapping into his readership. And I imagine Grieg... He won't, he won't throw that out. He's not, he's not going to be an idiot. I don't know the man at all, but I can't imagine he'd come in and change the whole scope of the mail because essentially they know their readership, they know what they want to read, and they're going to give it to them. But new brooms always sweep clean, even if that sweeping clean's a mistake. I don't know enough about him to know what he will do. Perhaps in the next six months to a year, we, we'll see some sort of noticeable change. I don't know what it will be, but everybody who comes in and takes something over wants to put their stamp on it, and usually they want to do it quite quickly. May I say I'm a big closet fan of the event magazine in Mail on Sunday. <laughs> I just, I can't, it's really difficult for me because I will not buy the Daily Mail, but Mail on Sunday event magazine is better than Sunday what's Times Culture. It, what's it, oh, is that what the event is? That yeah, it starts of, with a column by Piers Morgan called My Life and Other Celebrities, which is hilarious. <laughs> and then everything in it is actually really well written and resourced and interesting. Okay, let's talk about podcasting now. And Audio Boom have promised to pay all partners. Hooray. Uh, and invest in original content after a big funding announcement this week. The company's Senior Vice President of International Operations and Content Partners, Ruth Fitzsimons, told our producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry, about the deal. There's no denying that the last kind of couple of weeks have been a bit tricky for Audioboom. Um, we entered into a negotiation with Triton, which is a really big uh, data streaming and ad serving platform in the US. You know, I think both parties enter that with the best will in the world, you know, kind of hoping that it would be a really good match. But I think realistically, as the deal wore on, it just wasn't looking like the right deal for our investors. And so, you know, I think that's where our board made a decision to fundraise instead and make sure that we are fully funded and that we can keep going and keep growing. So we're very pleased to announce today that we have a fundraise of 4.5 million. Second announcement, uh, which came as part of that, was our year results from 2017. And I think what's important about 2017 is that that's really when Audio Boom started to begin the monetization process and started to develop out our ad sales teams. You know, what those results see is that that beginning of growth, which is really amazing, our sales between 2016 and 2017 increased by 260%. For podcasters, that means that they're starting to see money come in to the industry. And although here in the UK, we're a couple of years behind the US, you know, we can expect to start to see that process come over here as well. So what's the status of payments to your podcast partners? The fundraise will mean that we're able to kind of clear any outstanding payments uh, to our partners, certainly by the end of July. But I'll, I'll be honest, here in the UK, we're mainly on top of most of our payments already. M most of those issues were US. Where will you invest the money that you've raised now? 
So the money will be invested in a number of ways, but I think probably the most exciting of all is original content. And that's where Audio Boom will be seeking to grow our originals. We asked some Audio Boom podcasters what they'd like to ask you, mm-hmm. and uh, this is what they said. If Audio Boom did go under, what happens to the back catalogues and how will subscribers get their new shows? So I think, first of all, Audio Boom is going nowhere. <laughs> We're very much here to stay. Um, and I just want to kind of make it clear that, you know, were that ever to happen, we would always make sure that we, you know, kind of ensure that you get a hold of your files, that we would sort out RSS redirects, but we're going nowhere. We are here to stay and that funding ensures that. What size audience does a podcast need to be uh, financially viable for you and for the producers? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say on, on average, in order to start selling live reads, and that's those 60 second host read endorsements, really a podcast probably needs to be getting at least 10,000 listens per episode. And that's usually what we sell on is above that range. Um, Below that range, we do offer a subscription service at $9.99 a month. And that just allows podcasters who are beginning or starting out to start getting their podcast out and distributed to start to get their analytics. We keep an eye on those just so you know, so that if a podcaster, you know, really starts to grow, that we're able to step in and help them and offer them, um, you know, kind of advice and also monetization offers. Why should people uh, go to Audio Boom over places like Acast, for example? Yeah, like, you know, I'm not going to say anything to badmouth Acast. I think a bit of competition is really good in the market. You know, I think there needs to be some options for people in the market. I think what we do quite well, though, and I think what we pride ourselves on is that, you know, we are an international team. We work really closely here in the UK with our US partners um, and our teams um, in in India, for example. Um, and hopefully what that brings to people is that they have, you know, we bring them information globally. So we bring them the kind of tricks of the trade a little bit from the US and kind of help them grow their podcast and also help them in terms of their finance as well in terms of the monetization because we have sales teams that are so strong internationally we're able to increase the revenue to them but also we're really personable you know we really do see it as part of our role to kind of have a very personable relationship with our podcasters and we also have really good contacts with the third-party platforms so for example we have an overarching deal with Spotify to ensure that your podcast goes directly on to Spotify when you upload through audio boom and that's really important for us because we think that you should be as distributed as possible and that those relationships will mean that you get more listens across the board. We've been really impressed with the numbers we've seen back from Spotify since we've done our API integration with them. It's added quite a significant amount onto certain people's listening figures. Um, and, you know, we hope to be able to share a little bit more of that research down the line uh, once we have some some more kind of fully fledged numbers there. But it's looking really, really strong and it's great to see another platform in the market. Ruth Fitzsimons there talking to Rebecca. Liz, she talked about being personable. You know, she talked about this investment in original content. Do you think that's enough to win over the people that have been distanced from Audio Boom over the last few months because of the way they've mishandled this situation and the bad press around podcasts is not being paid. I think the bad press is is really unfortunate. But in terms of business, what was wrong that made the old investors pull out and why are the new investors come in and what's the difference between them? It does seem a little bit... Um, confusing to me. I, I'm glad for them that they've got the new investors and they've got the uh, 
the money. But I'm I'm not sure what went wrong and why the the investors that they have either divested themselves of or who involuntarily left the board have done so. It also seems to me a kind of peculiarly British way of dealing with this kind of Silicon Valley startup as well, because this sort of thing happens in the States all the time, doesn't it? And despite the fact that Ruth was talking there about being international, having offices in India and all the rest of it, the fact that this got through to the news agenda, the fact that people knew they were in trouble and they were shaky and they were seeking investment... I mean, that just doesn't get made public in the same way when these slick American companies are running them. Well, not necessarily, but I mean, you do you do have a very good rumour factory in the UK and you do have an awful lot... You have a gossip mentality in the UK, which perhaps you don't have to the same extent in, in the States. It, it, the whole thing is extremely intriguing and I, I was intrigued also by what she said about what they have to offer and, and how it can be different. Obviously, the Spotify link is great, but being personable and so on, is that really what these people have invested in? It's, it's an odd story, I feel. And Leon, if you were starting a new podcast with Talkback this week, would yeah. you consider hosting it with Audioboom? Uh, given they're able to get hold of four and a half million quid pretty quick, yeah, maybe I would. You know, they, uh, Despite the problems they've had, to attract that level of investment quite quickly is, however they've done it, is a sign that they're doing something well. It's not a huge amount of money, though, is it? For it them? is in podcasting. Yeah, in podcasting, but know, generally, but you know. it's kind of that seems like a decent amount of money for a podcasting company. Well, I mean, on that, do we think we're at risk of seeing the podcast bubble burst? I mean, I've been in podcasting a long time. There's no doubt there's been slow, steady growth over the last 12, 13 years. That doesn't appear to be going anywhere. But the idea that we saw a spike after serial and then loads of investment in the US, has that peaked? I think there is a danger that it has peaked. And I've been involved in quite a lot of startups in my broadcasting career. And and it is very interesting how they they can sort of build up this enormous sort of head of steam and that 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 goes nowhere. Um, So it's all relative. But... They've got that now, and they're steady because they have that money. But in the long term, it's not a lot of money. And where is it going to go from here? And Leon, does your audience research tell you that your audience are listening to podcasts? Uh, yeah, they do. I mean, it's interesting. We can, the story I think we're going to come on to is Love Island, mm. and they've started their own podcast this year. Just not even based. It's, it's obviously it's ITV have produced it because they obviously know their audience. There is an audience there. Definitely, I think podcasts are you know are going to grow, and they have been growing, and they will continue growing. And there will be probably these little troughs and spikes along the way. We might be coming into a little trough. I think the long term projection for podcasts is still positive. Okay, well, thank you for that tease as well, Leon. We will be talking about Love Island next, so that'll keep you hooked through this ad break. Right. Um, I doubt Leon and Liz are going to couple up, but let's see. We'll be back <laughs> after this. Car booty. Cash in the attic. Football, my arse. Fake Britain. What do all these shows have in common? You guessed it, they've all been made with the help of the post-production house where I am right now, Run VT in Newman Street. Run VT has 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theatre, a dubbing suite and a voiceover booth. Everything to satisfy your editing needs. To see what Run VT Studios can do for you, go to runvt.tv now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Time for some media news in brief now. Leon and Liz are still with me. And the Monday night Love Island launch show scored ITV2 its biggest ever audience. ITV2 that night beat the big five terrestrial channels with a peak of over 3 million live viewers. Uh, Leon, what is the secret of its success? Uh, um, I wish I knew. Um, I actually was... This is a little bit of a name-dropping anecdote. I was with the head of ITV2, Paul Mortimer, or head of ITV Digital, the the day after this, actually. And um, I didn't know that one of the shows I produce is Celebrity Juice... And previous to this night, we were the biggest show on ITV2. And he delighted in referring to us now as the second biggest show on ITV2. Oh, me. As a joke. But the third time he said the joke, it did slightly hurt. (laughs) Because we're now the second biggest show on ITV2. I think previously we'd had an overnight of about 2.6 million. It is a genuine phenomenon. I know everyone's been talking about this show. But you can't really underestimate how big a sort of change to the British broadcasting landscape this is, I think. This show is doing... We're last night, we're recording on a Wednesday, so this is last night's viewing figures, we're up on last week's show. There was 2.9 wow. million it was getting Tuesday night, which is absolutely phenomenal. It is making all the other broadcasters run scared. Part of the reason it launched very strongly last Monday was because all the other channels didn't even try. Okay, but you know, I actually happened to watch last night's show yeah. because I knew we'd be having this conversation today and I've never seen it before. What did you think, Ollie? I thought it's Big Brother. Well, that, that's and it why just I, is Big Brother. That's why I There's don't literally watch, nothing original about personally, it. Personally, I don't watch it because I spent seven years watching Big Brother But it's not even night, like a I good like episode of Big Brother. Nothing really bitchy. Or, I mean, I only watched the first 20 minutes. Maybe by the end they were all on each other. Great. But the first 20 <laughs> minutes, okay, yes, there were a lot of people in bikinis and a lot of guys walking around without their tops on. But... There's the internet for that. <laughs> well, I've seen it written about as kind of porn without the sex. It is sort of that. You know, it is very titillating. But beyond that, the actual conversations they were having weren't particularly entertaining. But they, they weren't in it Big Brother most of the time, were they? If you think about it. Exactly. Think, yeah, yeah. It's it same, is Big Brother. Yeah. So why is it suddenly so popular, Liz? I don't know. I mean, sex always sells, doesn't it? I was coming home on the tube last night quite late, and there were two women in the uh, carriage, obviously, had a few, and they were very loud. And one was saying to the other, I'm not coming back with you, I'm going back to watch another load of back episodes of Love Island. And the other woman said, well, you've got no life. But it was obviously in the ether. It's the sort of thing everyone's talking about. Of those shows, my favourite is Take Me Out. I really like that, and yeah. that's a terrible weakness, Leon is responsible for Take Me Out. Well done, Winning Leon. some credibility back with you, I think. <laughs> I, really, re- I really like that. I think it's very funny and, uh, and r- remarkably unsexist in a funny sort of way. So, Could this mean that millennials are returning to live TV. That's no, why people in the industry are excited. The reason the figures are up so much this year, as far as I understand it, this is what ITV's sort of reading of it is, is that not only the young people watching it now, the old people are watching it. And that was what, so the, the launch show it launched so strongly because it wasn't just, it did like 50, 44% 16, 34 year olds. That's remarkably which is good. A, that is huge. Really good. But that's a million people. That's roughly a million. Yeah. There's, still, there's still two million more people watching from outside that demographic. Yeah. And that's why it's so high. And there is a concern ITV, which is if once the young people 
people know their grand's watching it, they will they watch continue it. to watch yeah. it? And actually, I, again, watching ITV2 last night for the first time in a while, I was struck by the skill of its branding and the slickness of... I knew exactly who it was marketed at and why it existed in a way that, arguably, 10 years ago, it wasn't so good. You're clear. absolutely right. ITV generally has refound its feet, and it's great, and it's a really a really good offering. There's some excellent stuff, and, and when you watch it, you feel it's part of a very professional British, real traditional, but very professional British offering. Talking about the most professional and British of offerings, let's talk about the Maida Vale Studios. Uh, they are set to close after Tony Hall announced that the future of live music for the BBC is in Stratford. The new studios are going to be part of what Radio 1 controller Ben Cooper calls a creative community on the former Olympic site. Liz, why do you think the death knell for Maida Vale was sounded? I think this is something bigger than broadcasting. I think that the focus of the city is moving east. People are talking about the arts in East London in a completely different way. And presumably it's also cheaper and easier to maintain because in buildings like in Maida Vale, you know, you've got a lot of structural issues as the buildings age and so on. And you've got this brand spanking new place, which is probably cheaper to run. And everyone's going east. Go east, young man and woman. Leon, do you think it's a sensible business move? I think it probably it probably is, unfortunately. I mean, uh, the BBC have to save money, and having two music studios at either side of the capital doesn't make any sense. You know, the BBC have got really difficult decisions to make. The budgets are tighter than ever there. You know, the entertainment budget, which we obviously pitch a lot of shows into, you know, I, I maybe I shouldn't say this, but I've been told they have no money for the next year. You know, there's no money. They've, they've All the money's accounted for. So as a production company, you think, well, what's the point of pitching shows? Mm. It's fine. We just move elsewhere. We don't bother with the BBC for a while and we wait until they've got a bit more money to go back and see whether they would like any of our shows. Um, so I think st- decisions have to be made at the BBC which don't just purely relate to just trying to reduce budgets. They need to look at other savings they can make. One of the things in this article that I read that did amuse me slightly was with Tony Hall when, he, when they announced the closure of Made of L Studios. He talked about BBC Studios and basically said, you know, they should be judged on programmes, not, not profits. Yeah. Which did sort of make me think, I don't think he necessarily understands how production companies work. You know, that's not what BBC Studios are about now. BBC Studios need to make a profit mm. to be able to exist as a viable entity. If they I don't, think, I, they'll I honestly, have to kind of, you know, start sacking people. It was just one of those warm phrases, wasn't it? Yeah, but it, it should be programmes and that. profits. Yeah. To put programmes above profits is just not the way he should be talking about BBC Studios. You know, it makes me, as, as working for an independent or, you know, a private company, kind of a, it's a little bit cross. You go, no, hang on. We're meant to be competing against BBC Studios, and yet you're just saying the profits aren't important. Well, no, it's got to be a level playing field. And on Maida Vale Studios itself, they're a historic building. You know, Bing Crosby played his last gig there. The Beatles have played there. Have you ever been inside, by the way? No, I haven't. No. It's, it's an ama- yeah, weirdly, for the media podcast, we went in a couple of years ago to talk to Brent Spencer about Radio 2 Country when they were launching that, and it's an amazing building to go into. I just wonder whether there would be a more creative solution for this kind of thing. Well, you maybe, know, public-private maybe- partnership, like the BBC basically walked out of TV centre, right? And now it's become the home of ITV daytime. That's just weird. I mean, surely there'd be a way that the BBC could have stayed in Maida Vale, but with private money to do whatever they're going to do to it, build flats in it or whatever as well. Look, I'm not a great apologist for the BBC, but they've got a really difficult job because now you're asking them to be guardians of the nation's architecture as well as of the nation's media traditions and so on. And it's really, really difficult for them. They've got to make these difficult decisions about buildings. It isn't their job to conserve buildings. Maybe somebody else should take it over. They've got an athletics track as well, do you know, at the BBC? They did have everything going. Yeah, they, they had two planes at one point, like for the flying <laughs> club. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking the BBC, but at certain times, 
in the, in the current climate, mm. certain assets might have to be sold off to kind of rather than just kind of cutting budgets the whole time. Okay, let's uh, talk about Channel Five now and the new host of the Right Stuff. It's not Steve Wright, so they do need to change the name. Uh, it is his Radio Two bedfellow, Jeremy Vine. Leon, thoughts? I th- great move, I think. I mean. You love Jeremy Vine, don't you, Ollie? We've spoken about him in the past. How dare you take our private conversations <laughs> in the public space? And my I wife, think his production team have an uncanny knack of my putting wife their loves on the Jeremy Vine, loves Jeremy Vine as well. She listens to him almost every day when she's working at home. Uh, the one thing I would say about this, and I was really sort of, he's still doing his Radio 2 show. Yes. He, so he's going to finish the right stuff at 11.15 yep. and be on air at 12 o'clock yes. on, B- on Radio 2. He's going to be For briefed in the back of the cab. The, the, you know, Jeremy Vine last year was, when there was the pay figures came out, he was being paid up, at that point, up to three quarters of a million pounds a year. Yep. And I think he's now taking a pay cut, but we can assume it's probably still in the And that did include pounds. telly as well. So a bit of airheads, yeah. Head. Daytime yeah. TV ain't Fine. paying that much. Yeah. So the majority of his money is for doing his Radio 2 show. So now he's going to be paid probably in the region of half a million pounds a year to do a show which by by just the, the maths of it he has to do no prep for because he's going to turn up at midday and just do it and he can't really prep for after the show because essentially it's a topical show he might have a meeting after so it's a huge amount of money it's a li- I, my guess is he's got the leeway to do this job because they've given him a pay cut he's had a pay cut he's like well okay I can go do the right stuff and get paid for that now. But, but also, he's still being I mean, paid half a million pounds of public money to do a show which he's, is literally two hours a day at yes. this time. Because the, the argument he's got to prepare for it is now gone because he's doing a TV show yeah, but it, but it, for another broadcast. But in fairness, it's on the same subject, the day's tabloid news. I mean, Great, in so effect, he's, you know, he's researching his Radio 2 show on Channel 5's money, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Well, I'd like to know what he's now being paid for the BBC because essentially he's being paid to do his prep by another broadcaster. If I suddenly said to my company, oh, by the way, I'm gonna, not going to hear you in the mornings, I'm going to work for another company, mm. I'm going to be paid lots of money for it, but don't worry, I'm sort of working for you as well, my company would be furious, and Liz. I'm sort of surprised the BBC yeah. allowed this. That's exactly what I was going to say. It seems really strange that he's not on some sort of exclusive BBC deal or what have you. He's obviously very popular and massively in demand. It's over half it's, a million pounds a year, and he's not exclusive. Well, that's odd, isn't it? But it's a good move for Channel 5, clearly, because he's very popular. But from my point of view, and I know lots of people love him, it's another pale male stare yeah, personality. You know, I, I'm sad it's not a woman. Okay, and in terms of the title of the show, any ideas? Can't be called the right stuff anymore. Jeremy Vine's been asking for suggestions on what to call it on Twitter. On the great Vine, I mean, I can't, I can't go for another pun. What about I? the wrong stuff? Uh, the, <laughs> uh, well, he went for it's not right, but it's okay, which I thought was quite good as a joke. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's genuinely a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's a brand, the right stuff, isn't it? It's been around forever. Yeah, it's been what nineteen years, something like twenty years. I thought it was sixteen years. Yeah, Yeah. it's a long, long time. But you do get these shows that are branded by the people that that run them, and now would seem to be the right time to change the name of that show. I mean, obviously. Not only because the name of the host is leaving, but it feels like that's probably the right time to refresh a brand like yeah, that anyway. that's part of what it's about. I'd say it's an opportunity, you know. I think there's been a plan to get Matthew Wright out of that role for a while. They've cut the budget of that show repeatedly. They've changed production companies. So now they're sort of having to do the... They should have made this decision probably two or three years ago, rather than what they did do is kind of... Piss Push him off, out. Piss him off. And then, you it, know, it's very hard, though, isn't it, to, to change something when you've got a, a, a success? He was looking for reassurance, I think, at the end, Matthew Wright, about his role, which the I beat Channel 5 weren't willing to give him. So it, I know it got quite nasty at the very end. And really, it should have been a decision that was made two years ago. We done much more cleanly. When they changed the production company, let's, let's start afresh. I mean, they might have made the right decision in the end, ironically. You know, it's, but, it is um, interesting because I started a channel called, which is now Living, it was UK Living at the time, and we did daytime stuff. And it's really, really hard to get it right. And even when you get a big name or you're pretty sure it's going to work, it doesn't always work. It's quite a volatile audience. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. All right, there is just time for our media quiz. Oh. This yeah. week... It's a game of two halves. 
I'll give you 15 seconds each to answer as many questions as you can. Can about... I just give in now and say Leon's work? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know the subject, Liz. About the World Cup uh. pundits that ITV and the BBC have cobbled together. Some of them are women, Liz, so you should be all over I this. I know, they're the only ones I know. <laughs> I'll give you the name of a pundit. You tell me whether they're on ITV or the BBC. You're going to take it in turns, Liz, so it's just as many, it's like Popmaster, it's as many as you can name. Oh. Liz, we'll start with you. You need to tell me, is this pundit, ITV or BBC? And your time starts... Now, Vicky Sparks. BBC. Yes. Slavin Bilic. ITV. Yes. Didier Drogba. ITV. No. BBC. Frank Lampard. Amazon. <laughs> BBC. Alex Scott. ITV. No. BBC. Patrice Evra. ITV. Yes. Martin O'Neill, which means Three. that you, Leon was keeping score. Three right answers hey, to Hey, that's great. Not bad for someone... Are you not watching the World Cup at all? Not interested. kidding. But it hasn't started yet, so to be fair to Liz, that's kind of real deep knowledge. Oh, right. <laughs> that, is, that is so nice of you. I won't be watching it anyway. Some, Patrice Ever. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't even know he was a pundit. Well, so it's actually, deep cut. I did know that. I did know Here that. we go. Leon, time for your go. Liz, you're going to keep score and see right. how Leon does. Right, OK. ITV or BBC, your time starts now. Pablo Zabaleta. ITV? No, BBC. Roy Keane. ITV. Yes. Anil Aluko. ITV. Yes. Rio Ferdinand. BBC. Yes. Jurgen Klinsmann. BBC? Yes. Gabby Logan. BBC. Gary Lineker. Time's up. Wow. Wow. We don't even need Absolutely. To. Seven. Stunning. Thank you. Wow. To be fair, I had a few, I had Gabby Logan and Gary Lineker. You did, It's yeah. pretty straightforward. That is fairly straightforward. <laughs> Just like knowledge. <laughs> and also a lifetime of actually being interested in football. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to complain about this. Yeah, it's a little bit unfair. <laughs> uh, briefly, actually, on this, before we leave, what do you think about this business of Amazon entering the market to provide live Premier League matches for 2019? I, I think the thing that everyone seemed to miss in this is that what Amazon get by this deal is a, a highlights package they can put on Amazon uh, Prime system every week. Oh. And I think that's why they've done this, because the packages they're buying are... I can understand why no broadcast is interested in them, because essentially it's 10 games playing at the same time. It's not good for advertising. You know, you're not going to grow the market that way. But it's football, and that's but they, manage, they can put yeah. the Premier League logo on their adverts and every week they can have a highlights package which they get as part of the deal so they can now say we've got Premier League football every week of the year yeah. and I think that's what they're buying is, is essentially they're buying that element they're buying into the, that the brand, two packages they? they're getting are kind of like irrelevant really you know they just they shouldn't have ever been part of a tender to be honest they're not of interest to any of the main broadcasters well you can't say that when they actually got the money for them well but they 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 have 90 million down no is it more than that they're actually the whole deal is vastly down much the, no, half a billion down isn't it absolutely and that's the really interesting thing i mean that the fact that amazon is allowed in because there is a decline presumably and they had to cut the cost of this package i think just yeah. to get any buyer to get so i think i think richard scudamore the, the premier league chief left last week and i don't think it's any coincidence that he left when there's a half a billion reduction in the amount of money the, the Premier League took in it was a mistake these packages haven't been well handled they, you know the Premier League okay the bubble might have burst slightly but it shouldn't be making half a billion pounds less for more matches there's definitely something going on and it could even be that the, the bubble has burst and that the interest in soccer is declining I mean this can happen in the 60s and 70s you know more people went to home improvement shops on a Saturday than went to football things do change and when it comes to the World Cup are you going to be watching the BBC or are you going to be watching ITV? Just watch whatever channel it's on. Only Don't duck the question. No, what no, about only, when they simulcast? Ollie, just to explain, only, only the final. Okay. And if England get past the quarterfinals, I think, yeah. they only on get both. shown on both channels. So essentially, it's not, it's not, a, you're not a choice. You just get forced into whatever channel it's on. But when given the choice? Uh, 
Probably, I don't know. I quite Isn't like it a bit like ITV Royal Weddings? Like, Doesn't everyone yeah, always watch BBC because there's no ads? I don't like, I like the pundits on ITV. I like Roy Keane because okay. he says but, things that no one else will say. And but I it's an like absolute truism in British broadcasting that when it's in national event, people watch the BBC. It's true, yeah. They, just they, 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 uh, they usually get like eight to one, usually is mm. kind of the margin on that kind of stuff. Okay, well, they think it's all over. It is now. Uh, my thanks to our guest, Liz Howell, and our media quiz winner, Leon Wilson. Uh, Outrageous. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. You can head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. And remember, you can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale, Sherry, and The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.